0: If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke 16. Good morning. It's great to be back from Haiti. It was a very taxing week. No power at night, which for an American your first thought is no air conditioning at night. And, but uh, I had a strategic time there. We I was able to teach around 50 pastors who are getting their masters there. And we discussed and taught the uh, doctrine of salvation this week. And voodoo reigns in Haiti. And and voodoo is just an extreme expression of every other religion in the world, and it's simply this. You have to propitiate, satisfy the gods to get the gods off your back, okay? And so there's various forms of doing that, but you have to satisfy the gods. It's very superstitious. It's very wicked. And to have these pastors, and I, I was told that some of them even revert back to voodoo when things get really difficult because that's what they've always known. And so to be able to stand before them every week or every day and remind them that what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world is that, yes, the reason we sense that the gods must be satisfied is because it's a parody of the true religion. God must be satisfied because he is holy. But what sets Christianity apart is that God in his son satisfies himself. He judges sin in his son so that we don't have to be judged and that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world and so it was a delight to share with them every day and thank you for allowing me uh, to go down there and be a part of that if you would look with me in Luke 16 verse 14 the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let's pray. Father, I'm not sure it's possible to have stronger language than what we have in this text. And yet I confess what he says here is quite surprising to my ears. The things you find abominable are things that we often feel very comfortable with. We pray that you teach us today, grow us, mature us, incite us, provoke us to holiness. By this text, we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. You know, Thursday, I was reflecting on the fact that this past two or this past week, there were two dates in particular that were anniversaries, if you will, uh, for me at my time at the University of Alabama. Two very important dates. Tuesday was August the 27th, and then we had Thursday, the August the 29th. And those dates were very important in my time at the University of Alabama. August 27th, uh, 27 years ago, 1986, as a freshman, uh, we kicked off the opening of the football season again Ohio State which we won by the way and um, the kickoff classic and I can remember on that day in 1986 as a freshman being overwhelmed with emotion that the team that I had pulled for so fanatically for at that time 18 years I was now part of that team it was a it was an outer body experience uh, if you will And I was a part of that team for four years. But it was four years of bondage. And here's the reason Uh, every day was a trial for me. Every day I went into the courtroom. Every day I had to prove myself. And if I had a good day, I felt vindicated, I felt important, I felt significant. If I had a bad day, I felt like a failure. Towards my coaches, towards my teammates, towards even my family. It was slavery for me. Then I became a graduate assistant coach. And on August the 29th, 1991, 23 years ago, or 22 years ago, at a service at Open Door Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, God brought godly sorrow in my heart. And he convicted me of Idolatry. He convicted me that I had been living my life trying to justify myself before other people. And the way I justified myself was through football. If I performed well, then I was justified before men. If I did not perform well, and during those four years, I separated my shoulder four times. I fractured this bone here twice, and I twice sprained my lower lumbar vertebrae in my back. If I did not perform well or if I was injured, I felt like a failure before other people. And God delivered me that night, August the 29th, 1991. And yet it's a process. Sanctification is always a process. And I was a graduate assistant coach at the time. And um, about a year later, August of 92, my contract was up as a graduate assistant. I had been making $435 a month, working 60 hours a week in addition to graduate school. And at this point, I realized I, I didn't want to coach. I was watching these guys. I, they'd come in before the sun went uh, was, would rose and they would leave when the sun had uh, gone down and they had no family life and and I I just wanted nothing to do with it. And so they asked me, could you stay through December? And I didn't even have to pray about it. I said, I'm out of here. And uh, I left in August of 92 and they won the national championship four months later. Um, (laughs) And it was... I tell you... With them winning that, I I, I began to realize that I wasn't completely delivered from the idolatry. Because I can remember the bitterness and the anger and the jealousy of not being a part of this team that I had helped coach for eight months up to that time. It was self-justification that God was convicting me of. Uh, The essence of self-justification is the the need, the perceived need, to be vindicated before other people. Okay, So that we can feel importance, so that we can feel significant. And that's how self-justification works. It's the idolatrous need, if you will, or desire to receive a verdict from others that you matter. Self-justification. All of us prior to our conversion are enslaved to that. If you're not a believer, you haven't been saved, and you don't find your identity in Christ, you are a slave to self-justification. You're always looking for that ultimate verdict that your life matters, that you're really important and valuable. And even as believers... It's something we struggle with daily until we definitively learn that our identity is in Christ. That the ultimate verdict on our lives has been rendered in Jesus Christ. And so we look for it every day in all the situations, in all the people that we're around. Which means that every day we're on trial. Every day we go into that courtroom, okay? And there is uh, all of these different, um, uh, you know, these things that are presented by the prosecution. Evidence for the prosecution. There's evidence for the defense. Some days you feel like that you've won the trial and you're winning the trial. And other days you feel like you're losing the trial. That's the enslavement of self-justification. The essence of the trials are justification before others. Now, why do I say all that? Because that's exactly what the Pharisees struggled with. That's who the Pharisees were. They were consumed with human praise. In fact, Jesus will say in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of the hypocrites, which was the Pharisees, They did all of their religious acts. They paraded their religion to receive the praise of men. Matthew 6 verse 2. And that's why they loved money. You see, if you had money from a Pharisee's perspective, that meant you had the smile of God on your life. So they were... were coveting of money and money was the means to attain this human praise. In their view, uh, that signaled God vindicated you. But in Jesus' view, he saw their love for money was a signal That they were fundamentally idolatrous to the heart. And hence, as he begins to expose their idols, they scoff. And at this point in the text, they're actually ridiculing Jesus. Look with me in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Now what were they hearing? We saw last time, didn't we? They were listening to Jesus give a parable and principles out of that parable. And the parable was essentially this there's a man who was a steward of his master, and he uses the resources available to him to secure his future. So he was living in the present in light of the future. And the principle that comes out of that is we are all stewards of what God the Master has entrusted to us. And we are to submit these resources to God to secure our eternal future. We're to submit them to Him for His kingdom purposes. And if you're using your resources, you're using your money in any other way, that is fundamentally idolatry. And idolatry condemns a soul. Notice in verse 13, he said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Remember earlier, the Pharisees had grumbled because they felt like that Jesus was not hard enough on sin. The, the tax collectors and the sinners are all gravitating to Jesus and he's eating with sinners. And they were saying, this man eats with tax collectors and sinners. They did, he does not take the law of God very seriously. But now they have the opposite complaint. That's what's remarkable to me here. Uh, by speaking against the love of money, he was being too rigid. <laughs> He was being too rigid. And that's how legalism works, by the way. That's always how legalism works. To obtain the standard, okay, to obtain the standard that we create for ourselves as legalists, we, we have to pick and choose the laws and the traditions that we deem as really important. And then we minimize or modify or ignore other crucial laws and traditions. That's legalism. And they felt that they could love money and love God at the same time. And Jesus was saying you can only have one ultimate love. That's how the heart operates. Okay? You can only have one ultimate treasure. The question is, how about you? You know, I just came from the, what is now the poorest country on earth. Haiti. It was the poorest country in the western hemisphere. Now since the earthquake where 350,000 people died a couple of years ago, it's the poorest country on earth. And I was really convicted this week of how dependent I am on material things. Simple things like an air conditioner Okay, Or being able to just drive down the road to get a cup of coffee. How about you? Do you have an inordinate, controlling love for money? It's easy just to dismiss that question. Philip Riken gives us a few test um, warning signs to help you consider answering that question as honestly as you can. First of all, when you're anxious about your finances, you live in light of that anxiety. And you're not trusting God to provide. Then that signals that you're in love with money's power to make you feel secure. You're looking to money for security. A second signal is that when our lives are so full of work, we have to say no to Christian service. We have to be very uh, withdrawn from body life. We're in love with money and have given it mastery over our schedules. Third, when we find our thoughts returning over and over to something we want to buy, we're in love with money and its power to get us what we think we need. There's nothing like going on a mission trip to find out that there's things that we want that really aren't our needs. When you see the simplicity of missionaries. 24-year-old couple uh, that I taught at Boyce down in Haiti. They, they, they live so simply. No, no power at night. No television. Uh, they said the toughest part is just the isolation. They can't get away. They can't just go down and go to the movies on a date. It's just the simplicity. It reminds you that you don't need everything that you think you do. Um, Fourth, when we make employment decisions that are spiritually unwise for us and our family, we're in love with money and our plans for getting more of it. There's people who perhaps should say no to promotions opportunities because it's not going to be good for them spiritually. It's one of the reasons I decided not to coach because it's very hard to be a college football coach and be devoted to Christ and his church and to be devoted to your family. Fifth, when we find ourselves discontently wishing we had some material things that God has given to someone else. So there's a sense of discontentment, okay? We're in love with money and the convenience and the status and the pleasure we think it offers. Six, we spend more time complaining about what we don't have than rejoicing in what we do have. Then we're in love with money and depend on our possessions rather than God to give us contentment. And then finally, when it seems impossible to give a tithe or to give sacrificially because we have different priorities... I was watching the Alabama game yesterday when the satellite wasn't off because of the storm. Not that 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 bothered me when the satellite went off. I'm too sanctified for that. (laughs) I was watching the Georgia Dome just filled to the rafters with Alabama fans. Trust me, I grew up in Alabama culture. I guarantee you 90% of those rabid fans you saw in the Dome... We're Southern Baptists. <laughs> Alabama's filled with Southern Baptists, and they go to church. And I guarantee you that Southern Baptists in Alabama give what the national average is for evangelicals, less than 2% of their income. Because they don't have it. We don't make enough. We, but they have money for tickets. They have money for RVs. They have money to go chase the crimson tide all over the country. By the way, do you know that Mormons give 6%? We give less than 2%. That's a shame. That's a shame. Well, I think this list, not necessarily a comprehensive list, can help show us whether we treasure God above all things or whether we need to repent of our love affair with money. And material things. Which is a very dangerous place to be if that's where we are. And hence Jesus' rebuke. Notice his rebuke in verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let me think about this. Justifying yourself before men. That is, you live your life consumed with human approval. You live your life to receive the commendation of men. He says, but God knows your hearts and he's the one that really matters. Because in the end, you're going to stand before him and your eternity hangs in the balance based on his verdict. Not what other people think about you. Because what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. In other other words, the things that men exalt, the things that you would have to do and be to be exalted by men is actually an abomination to God. That's one of the most important verses in the Bible for helping us understand why we act the way we do. Why do we Live so influenced by what others think about us. Well, Paul says it's because the fallen human ego, that is the sense of self, is puffed up. It's puffed up. 1 Corinthians 4. That literally means inflated, swollen. Our egos are swollen. In fact, Tim Keller. In his wonderful little book, The Freedom of self forgiveness suggests four things about that fallen ego that kind of help explain our tendency to self-justify. To help explain why we need to be vindicated by others. He says, first of all, the fallen ego, that sense of self, that is, is empty. And the reason it's empty is it's not filled by God. And so it's empty. And hence our tendency to try to build our identity, our our self worth, our purpose on something besides God. And if you try to fill the middle of that ego with something that only God can fill, it's always going to be too small. It's always going to be too small. Look at Hollywood. They seek to fill their egos and it's always too small. They go from one relationship to another. They go from one rehab to another. It can only be filled by God because we were created for Him. He has set eternity in our hearts. Secondly, the ego is painful. Because it's broken, it's painful. Have you ever noticed you don't notice a body part until it's hurting? Until there's something wrong with your body part, you don't notice it. You don't wake up and go, dude, look at my thumbs. Man, thank you. But if you get a, some kind of nail infection, you really notice your thumb, don't you? Okay? The reason our body parts draw attention to themselves is because they're hurting. And the reason our egos are always calling attention to themselves is because they're in pain, they're hurting, they're broken. Okay? That's the reason our egos hurt. They're broken. Um, And that's why we are always so concerned about how we're treated and how we look. Our impression before others, okay? Okay? Um, I mean, think about it. It's very hard to get through a day without somehow feeling snubbed by somebody. It's hard to get through a day uh, without feeling ignored by somebody. Or or feeling stupid. or, 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 Or getting down on yourself. Why is that? Because the ego is broken. The ego, as a result of its brokenness, is in pain. Thirdly, the ego is very busy. In other words, because it's broken and because it's empty, it's always busy trying to fill it, okay? It's always drawing attention to itself, trying to fill the emptiness. And it's in particular doing two things. Comparing itself to others. Comparing yourself to others or boasting. One of the two, comparing or boasting. And then finally, fourthly, the ego Is fragile because it's overinflated, like a balloon, it's always subject to being deflated, and that makes you a slave to your circumstances and a slave to other people. Okay, it's a very bad place to be, and of course, this broken ego is why we tend to be self absorbed. It's why we tend to be so focused on ourselves. Because we're trying to mend that brokenness ourselves. We're trying to fill the emptiness ourselves. And that's why we self-worship. That's why we love ourselves more than anything else on the face of the earth. Including God. Including our families. And the Pharisees were emblematic of self-worship. They were the poster children of self-worship. And why do you think Jesus spent so much time critiquing them? I mean, throughout the Gospels, Jesus has his sights set on the Pharisees because the Pharisees are a parable of the human heart. We're all works, righteousness, sinful people. And so by critiquing the Pharisees, he's critiquing us. Recognize that. And the point is... If we're going to find our identity around anything but God, what we are saying, in effect, is we are declaring our preference for the absence of God in our lives. And as we've seen, one of the ways the Pharisees tried to justify themselves was by treating their financial success as a means of self-salvation. But there's other ways to do it. I found this wonderful statement by Tim Chester in his book, Uh, A Meal with Jesus. He says, if the idea of salvation is to have friends accept you. Now, when we say salvation, we don't mean eschatological salvation. We just mean trying to find significance and trying to find, you know, a purpose and happiness. If the idea of salvation is to have friends accept you, then your first commandment will be, thou shalt not be uncool. And uncool people must be avoided. Okay? I think that's the case with a lot of young people in school. Okay? That's their idea of salvation, to be the cool one, the popular one. That's why they compromise. If your idea of salvation is a beautiful home, then your prophet will be Martha Stewart. Your rule will be antique pine, tiled floors, and distressed paint. Your commandment will be, Thou shalt not be untidy. Anybody untidy in my house will be judged, right? (laughs) But self-salvation does not work. Because none of these versions of salvation deliver. They don't bring satisfaction because we were made to know God and glorify Him. Anything less is a cheap substitute. They're not salvation. And self-salvation doesn't work because we can't measure up. We never measure up. I never measured up at Alabama. Because if I had a good practice, the next day I may not have a good practice. Even on a good day, you'll worry about what others think of you. If you want security and prosperity and you lose your job, then you're condemned. Even when you have a job, you'll be anxious, overbusy, and unable to say no. And how different this is. Different it is from the gospel of grace. And what Jesus says to the Pharisees here is this true for us. Even if you get what you desire in the way of self-justification before men, God knows what's in our hearts. Indeed, what God considers condemnable is the things that sinful men exalt. That's a dangerous place. I mean, when you think about abomination, what do you think about? I think about some really bad stuff. I think about really flagrant sins. Like I went into an orphanage on Friday. If you could walk through that orphanage without crying, your heart is hard. And those orphans are in there because of a variety of things, but in part uh, corrupt government and... Moms and dads who just gave them away. That's an abomination. I wouldn't necessarily think about self-justification and love for money as an abomination. But that's what Jesus says here. This is an abomination to God. And an abomination is anything that is repulsive to God. But if all it takes is to be one enslaved to human approval and to be one enslaved to love for money what hope do we have? If all it takes to be abominable to God are these things, what hope do we have? Well, our only hope is grace. That's our only hope. Our hope is not found in getting approval from other people. People are fickle. One day they love you, one day they don't. The only hope we have is grace. It's God providing the verdict of grace approved, vindicated. And that brings us to the last part of this text. We've seen uh, the ridicule of the Pharisees. We've seen the rebuke of Jesus. But thirdly, we see the remedy of Jesus. Notice in verse 16, he says, "...the law and the prophets were until John." Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. I can say a whole lot about this. We're running out of time. Let me just say this. The Pharisees have completely missed the point of the the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was never given that we may have a moral ladder to ascend to God. The whole Old Testament is preparing us for Messiah. The law and the prophets were given to drive us to the Messiah. Because there's no way we can obey the law and the prophets. Okay? God's standard is perfection. The righteousness of God is bad news for us. The righteousness of God as revealed in the law and the prophets is bad news. Jesus is saying there's a righteousness from God that is good news. The righteousness of God condemns us. The righteousness from God saves us. The righteousness of God is the law and the prophets driving us to Messiah. In Messiah we find the righteousness from God. And when we recognize the bad news, we force our way. I mean, that's what he says. Notice in verse 16. Everyone forces his way into it. That's not work salvation, that's desperation. You recognize your plight before God. You mean, God, you're not going to honor the fact that I took role in Sunday school? You're not going to honor the fact that I gave you 10% of my offerings? That I, that I sang in the choir? You're not going to honor that? You're going to judge my sin? But then you see, he has judged his sin in a substitute. The the Messiah, which is the good news of the kingdom. You force your way to him. You do what it takes. You take up your cross. You deny yourself and you follow him. There's no price too high. Yesterday I was in Miami. They didn't have a flight out Friday night from Haiti. So I was at a Miami airport hotel. I took the shuttle over to the, to the uh, airport, got off the shuttle, was in line uh, to check my bag. The bag, the, the line was so long, I had to catch my flight in about an hour and 15 minutes and I just backed up. All of a sudden, I realized I left my cell phone on the shuttle. <laughs> and to lose your cell phone is to lose a lot, right? Pictures, number, everything. Well, I got really desperate, okay? And I got really nervous. I started shuffling, you know, and um, I finally got my bags, bags checked, and, and there's an hour and five minutes before I have to take my flight, so I run outside hoping to see that shuttle, which comes every 30 minutes, come back around. There's no shuttle. Five minutes pass by, there's no shuttle. I go to a security guard, and I say, Hey, brother, is, is, I need to call a shuttle. He said, Well, uh, call him. I said, well, he has my cell. (laughs) I can't call him. He said, he gave me his cell and he said, okay, call him. I said, I don't know their number. (laughs) And then this guy, who's evidently smarter than me, he said, well, call your number. (laughs) So I called my number and a man answered the phone. It was the shuttle driver. I almost started crying. (laughs) I said, "Um, you have my cell phone. And I, I guess the way I said it sounded like he had stolen it. <laughs> he said, well, I have your cell phone because you left it on the shuttle. I said, man, are you going to be back at the, the airport anytime soon? He said, well, I'm at the hotel. I'll be there in 15 minutes. I am mean, the clock is ticking. And so I'm standing by the curb. It's 150 degrees out there in Miami. And people actually move there. <laughs> and... Finally, I see that shuttle driving down the road, and I sprint to him, okay? He opens up the door. I grab myself, and I said, you are a good brother. That's all I had time to say. And I sprinted, and I sprinted, and I sprinted. I was dodging people. I was running over some people. I was jumping over bags. I was forcing my way because I knew my only hope to getting back to Louisville was that airplane. Okay? Now listen, forcing your way in the kingdom is not works, it's a sign that you actually get it. It's actually taking root in your heart and your mind. That you actually rise. Jesus is my only hope. How can I be lukewarm? And so you desperately throw yourself on Jesus. The Pharisees weren't doing that because they did not understand the bad news. In their self righteousness, they thought there was good news in them. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And that's why he brings up the law and the prophets here. The good news of the kingdom is this the law slays us. And in Christ, God judges the sin. Instead of judging us. And then he says in verse 17, just to make clear that the law is still binding. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He's not antinomian here, anti-law. He said the law's purpose is to drive us to him... And now having been saved by him, it drives us back to the law because the law is the moral reflection of God. We now love the law, not as servants, or slaves rather, but as sons and as daughters. And he's showing the Pharisees that ironically, they had completely missed the law, and they were the ones who were the lawbreakers. And now he's going to close with an example of how they break the law. Verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That seems out of the blue. All of a sudden he's talking about marriage. No, he's talking about law. And he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. In other words, divorce is still divorce. Adultery is still adultery before the eyes of God. Now, there are certain times when divorce is allowed. I believe that uh, unrepentant adultery is, uh, is an allowance for divorce. 1 Corinthians, uh, or Matthew chapter 5. And abandonment is another allowance for divorce. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And yet, divorce is never... God's ideal. Because marriage is a covenant. Okay? Now, what's his point? His point is this. Many of the Pharisees, not necessarily all of them, but many of the Pharisees were kind of allowing, you know, some liberality here on divorce. For instance, there were those who taught, you, you could justly divorce your wife if she burned your meal. True. Or if you thought there was someone else more attractive than your wife, then it was a just reason to divorce your wife. They were overlooking certain aspects of the law. And that's the way legalism works. Which is the way every self-justifier operates. In order to have any hope of keeping some semblance of the law, we have to ignore certain parts of the law. We have to minimize other parts of the law. And Jesus is saying, you're condemned because you must keep the whole law to be righteous in God's sight. And this extends beyond marriage. It extends to all the various aspects of our life, doesn't it? Our tongue, our attitudes, our thoughts, our hopes, our loves. By lowering the standard, it makes it much easier to self-justify. Just ignore certain parts. You know, there's people in churches, I've seen it growing up. They are stickler on certain things. Okay? On certain things in the church, they are sticklers, man. But there's no love in their hearts. In other words, they focus on certain things. Oftentimes, it's just traditions. And then they ignore the heart of the law, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the Pharisees, and that's the Pharisee in us. And this is why the gospel is good news. Because the fact is, this law... Slays us all. All of us are legalists at heart. None of us love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. None of us love our neighbors as our strength, as as our as ourselves. We are all slayed. But that's what makes the gospel good news. Remember, every passage in Luke is intended to take us to the end of the book. He's explaining why we need a cross and a resurrection. Because in the gospel, we're no longer in the courtroom. The trial is over. We don't have to justify ourselves. Okay? We don't have any more courts to go into. Because Jesus, the substitute, went into the courtroom for us. He went on trial for us. And God, the judge, rendered our substitute as guilty, condemned in our place. And then God the judge, having condemned the substitute, raised him from the grave and he rendered him justified. Vindicated. And for those of us who repent of our sins and force our way into the kingdom by trusting and embracing Jesus, we are now vindicated before God. The trial is over. There's no more courtrooms. Vindicated. In light of that, how can we continue to worry about being snubbed and and ignored by human courts? The trial is over. You're vindicated. Why do you hold on to your money as your security? The trial is over. You're vindicated. The verdict is in justified. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's table.